Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Patient Podcast. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. When my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I decided to use my skills as a journalist in a different way. Frustrated by the lack of information on science and the inability to get different expert opinions, I decided to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal to create a better platform for people impacted by dementia. We are a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. We invite the experts and ask your questions. Here's today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today we're going to talk about Alzheimer's research and genetics. Uh, there are people out there who have a genetic link to disease. What does this all mean for research and risk? And could it be actually the road to finding prevention? So joining us today, I'm glad to have back with us Dr. Marwan Saba. He's one of the best neurologists um, in the business. And for complicated topics like uh, genetics, we'd like to come and, and talk to Marwan. So thanks very much, Marwan, for being here. Thank you, Deborah, for having me. Okay, let's just start first with talking about, um, you know, there's people obviously who will know a lot about genetic risk and those who, who don't, maybe just finding out that they have a uh, genetic um, link to Alzheimer's disease. Let's start with talking about APOE4, which is otherwise known as the Alzheimer's gene. Right. Tell me a little bit about, you know, whether you have one or two copies, um, what is that risk? Yes, so... It's a very interesting story that starts over 30 years ago. Most people do not realize that APOE4 carrier status is actually originally linked to heart disease, not to Alzheimer's disease. So we got to this journey through the heart route, not the Alzheimer's route. It was found out 30 years ago by Dr. Saunders, Quarters, and Roses in Duke in, Cal in North Carolina that uh, if you had two copies of the APOE4 gene, meaning one from each of your parents, uh, you actually had um, a lifetime risk somewhere between 13 and 18 fold higher than the general population. And if you have a single copy, meaning one, uh, uh, three, uh, one four, you uh, have a three to four time lifetime risk over the general population. And when you break it down in terms of demography, 80% of people do not carry the APOE4, 20% have one copy or 18% have one copy and 2% have two copies. Okay, and there's different, um, E4 is the risk, um, E3 right. is neutral, and right. E2, we believe, um, offers a bit of protection. Although, to this day, I've never met anyone with E2. I uh, have met a few, but I I think that uh, we would love to say that ideally. I'm not sure it really applies in practice, because E2 is very rare, as you just pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. So, what do we know about what is APOE4 responsible? I always... Um, hear cholesterol transport mentioned when you're talking right. about this gene. So tell us a little bit about what we actually know about this gene. So there's a lot of things to say. Number one is that when we eat food, we uh, have proteins that carry things right out of our digestive system to our liver. Those are called apolipoproteins. 
Uh, APOE is responsible for is responsible for carrying cholesterol and cholesterol-like molecules to the liver. We know that we have different types of apolipoproteins. Uh, what we know about the link, and that doesn't have anything to do with Alzheimer's, but what we know is that APOE4 carriers tend to accumulate more amyloid in their brain or perhaps clear it out of their brain less efficiently. So there's a, you know, a lot of people think that you're just always making amyloid and clearing out amyloid, kind of turning it over constantly, but APOE4 carriers do that less efficiently. So over time, APOE4 carriers tend to have more amyloid in their brain. So the question is, is how does that link to the cholesterol transport mechanism? And that's still being explored because, you know, we always love the idea that APOE could be a druggable target unto itself, but nobody's ever, as far as I know, been able to achieve that. So do we know though, and I've also heard uh, if you're diagnosed with MCI, um, often the path to Alzheimer's is faster for people who have E4. Absolutely. Is, is that true? That is absolutely true. So there are four people with MCI or mild cognitive impairment, uh, means they have a cognitive disorder, but not are still independent. We know that there are four significant risk factors for progression to dementia. A presence of amyloid, significant neurodegeneration on your uh, MRI, bottoming out on your neuropsych testings, and the APOE4 carrier status. So if you are not an APOE4 carrier, your risk of progression to dementia is 6% per year. And if you're an APOE4 carrier, it's 17% per year. So it is a significant predictor of future risk. Not so, decline, I should say, not risk, but a decline. So when you were just talking about cholesterol, um, like, so putting it in layman's terms, simply sure. what's happening is the efficiency of cholesterol um, or something goes wrong with the cholesterol transport to make the brain more susceptible to building up plaque? So with that that transport mechanism theory is, has been kicked around, but truth is, is we we know the observation that APOE4 carriers have more amyloid, maybe they're just not clearing it out, but we're not sure how the cholesterol transport mechanism ties so closely to the amyloid production or clearance. So I think that we have an association. We just haven't figured out the connection quite as well as we should. Okay. And this is where it's kind of getting interesting in research. Like people, people always ask me, okay, wh where are the, the, the places to look for what's coming next in research? And I, I would actually say genetics is one because yeah, I think there's a lot of research going on. I mean, at first a couple of years ago, you and I were talking blood tests and diagnostics. Now I feel like we're moving into genetics, right? Absolutely, 100%. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, I know that there's gene modification, gene theory, uh, medications being tested to actually alter the impact E4, the risk that E4 has, and make it act more like a non-risky, like E3, E2 in some cases, maybe. Tell me a little bit about what's going on uh, on the landscape of research and, and genetic modification. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we would have said that's science fiction, but truth be told it's actually happening as you just commented. Uh, there's actually a company that I know of that's actually promoting or, or proposing gene therapy that would genetically alter your APOE4 to not be working like an APOE4. So eventually turning off APOE4. And so that's the first generation of actual real gene therapy. And that's now I think the clinical trials going on in that. But I suspect we're going to do more and more stuff like that as time goes on. So 
if we take that risk, I mean, okay, the other thing that I, I, I'm not clear on with genetics is um, we don't, we still don't have enough data on different races and populations, but I, I remember we reported on one study of E4 um, amongst the black population and the same risk association wasn't, was what it was determined, it wasn't as risky for blacks as, as it is whites. Now, I don't think that was a, a really wide, huge study. Yes. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about what we know in terms of different people's race and, and the risk profile uh, with genetics. Yeah, so there's a lot of, that's been looked at all over the world, uh, the association with age, gender, genetics, family history. And the idea is that you would say the interaction between APOE4 carrier status uh, and risk is not as robust as it is in uh, Caucasians and Western countries. And that's been looked at all over the world. Uh, I think we know that it's just not as robust, but it's not zero. It's not like APOE, not having APOE4 or having APOE4 in any ethnic group is never a risk. It's just less of a risk. And, and the whole thing about African-Americans is that there is some thoughts that uh, uh, they have combined multiple risks. They tend to have more diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. And so it might not be strictly an APOE4 risk. It's a combined risk. So where is the the um, research getting interesting, do you think? Is it, I mean, can we look at genetics in terms of prevention instead of cure, right? I mean, where would you categorize it? So I, I feel like, uh, you know, the one major change I'm very excited that we're discussing is that, you know, you and I had this conversation two, three, five years ago, the whole idea of APOE genotyping was taboo. Like, you shouldn't do that. It's dangerous. Uh, uh, so one thing that I am happy is that we're discussing it, number one. Number two is that uh, genetic testing is less taboo than it was, uh, mainly because in the last year, year and a half, there's now consensus guidelines saying if we're going to give these new monoclonal antibodies, you must do genetic testing for risk stratification. So we went from not talking about it at all to now using it for risk stratification because we know that if you're an APOE4 double copy, your risk of having complications with the monoclonals is quite high. And so what I'm saying is now we're all of a sudden discussing it. You know, the funny thing is, is that, uh, you know, 23andMe has been doing your APOE genotyping for years and uh, without any genetic counseling. So uh, the whole taboo was always, I thought, a little bit on the arbitrary side, but I'm glad we're discussing it. I'm glad that people are readying themselves to be tested. So how do you use it for diagnostics? And tell me a little bit about, I mean, you see a lot of patients. Yeah. Um, do you feel like, how? what percentage do you feel like are willing to have that genetic test? So uh, I will tell you more than people think. I actually, I'm one of the few docs in America that have been doing APOE genotyping for years. And uh, I explain it in advance. I never draw it blind. I never try to surprise them. I say, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it. And so I've been using it in the proxy diagnostic modality. But beyond that now, I will tell you is that um, uh, we're now using it for risk stratification. So if there's any chance I'm giving a patient a monoclonal, I'm absolutely going to get their APOE genotyping. So we must uh, think about it both from risk stratification and from proxy diagnostics. 
Tell me a little bit about what it means to find people with E4 um, for research overall. I mean, they're obviously a targeted risk population who that science can learn a lot from. Um, so what, what primarily are we looking for and um, what is the value to research um, this, this subgroup of the population? Yeah, so I have to tell you, Deborah, that uh, uh, you know when I see a young person, and my definition of a young person is under seventy, right? So if I see a young person with progressive amnestic uh, uh, cognitive decline, uh, I'm first uh, one of the very first things I'm I'm leaning toward doing genetic testing early because they tend to be the homozygotes. The homozygotes tend to present in their sixties, and uh, heterozygotes in their seventies, and non-carriers in their eighties, kind of roughly speaking. Uh, but we also know that homozygous tend to progress more rapidly. They have more pathology. They have more complications. Uh, so genotyping actually adds a lot of value to the conversation. Uh, and so uh, I, I use the profile of the patient to determine whether I'm going to do genotyping. What do you think people should know before they get their test? So we used to say, you know, genetic counseling. I think that is not necessarily the case. Uh, you know, without, without being self-promoting, uh, I would tell them to buy my books because I've written a few books on the topic, so that would be one thing. But beyond the self-promotion, I will tell you that uh, you should do uh, get a deep dive on what it means to do APOE. The Congress passed a law in 2008 called the GENE Act, the Genetic Information Non-Discriminability Act, which says you cannot lose your ability to get healthcare insurance on the basis of your, of your genetics, but you can lose your ability to get long-term care insurance. So we caution people that who are not symptomatic to not get tested routinely. So when we're talking about this conversation, Deborah, I would never draw these people in asymptomatic people. I'm only drawing people who are coming to my clinic who are having symptomatic complaints, et cetera. So just to give you that perspective, I would not do it for risk stratification. Uh, so we have to be very tailored in how and selective in how we use these these uh, new tests. Does are you able to identify through through you know the patients that you see in and what you've done that in fact people with um, homozygous E4 get plaques in their brain earlier than than normal or does it just speed up the whole process? Yes and yes, uh, we know that uh, if they're you know kind of the rule of thumb from all the data is that if you're Develop, accumulating pathology, if you're getting, uh, your symptoms start 20 years after you start to accumulate pathology. So if you're an APOE4 uh, homozygote, meaning two copies, and you're coming to my clinic at age, say age 65, that means you've been accumulating pathology in your brain since the age, you know, your mid forties. It's very young. So we need to actually think about Deborah. We need to re-engineer the whole concept of Alzheimer's we think of it as an elderly disease when in fact it's probably a middle age or lifelong disease. So with these new monoclonal antibodies coming to market, um, it, what is the scenario for people who have a genetic risk? I mean, I actually have had people within our community ask, should they be considering these drugs before they even know actually if they have the gene, they just have a, a big family component, right? And and they want to know, A, for the first question is, should I get tested? And second, should I go on these drugs, right? Um, I mean, we're not going to put people, I, 
you know, t tell us a little bit about who gets to take the drugs and who doesn't and how they can be used as prevention today in terms of what we know, because obviously they're very new drugs that have come to market. So the new drugs that we're talking about are called monoclonal antibodies. These are drugs that are uh, engineered to remove amyloid out of your brain, and they do it very, very well. We have one now, lecanemab, already approved. We have expected in the next two to three months, uh, denaninab to be approved. And everybody in our, my world says denaninab should just get approved. So I don't think there's an issue about that. These drugs work, work very well. That's not the issue. The issue is risk. The issue is about risk stratification. So we know uh, the one of the most common complications of these drugs is uh, something called ARIA, amyloid-related imaging abnormality. And the biggest predictor of ARIA is your APOE4 carrier status. So let's take the new drug called Lakembi or Lakanemab. If you're not an APOE4 carrier, your risk of getting ARIA is 5%. And if you're heterozygous, meaning one copy, it's 15%. And if you're a homozygous, it's 33%. So the APOE4 carrier status is the determinant of you know, the probability of developing these complications. So I only do the genotyping nowadays, not only, but most commonly use the genotyping if I am selecting a patient for a monoclonal. So if I say to you, Deborah, I'm going to put the patient on a monoclonal, then part of my diagnostic evaluation includes the uh, APOE4 genetic uh, genotyping. I have to tell you, having now many people already on these tr new treatments, Deborah, I'm a little afraid to give the four double homozygous, two copies of E4. I'm a little afraid to give them these new treatments because of the risk being so high. With Adderhelm, it was 70%. Do we know why that they have a higher risk of yes. ARIA? Yes. So the, the prevailing thought at this moment is that amyloid uh, deposits in the blood vessels called cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and APOE4 carriers tend to have more cerebral amyloid angiopathy, and that because you have more uh, amyloid in your blood vessels, when you bind those blood vessels with these monoclonal antibodies, the, or at least the amyloid, you make them leaky. And that's what's causing the uh, aria. So is there, in fact, a scenario where research could possibly start treating before the presence of plaques? Oh, excellent question. And that is an area of hot debate in the scientific community. I think people think that these new treatments could be useful before the onset of symptoms, right when you're starting to accumulate plaques. And those trials are actually ongoing right now. As we speak, those ongoing trials are ongoing. So we expect to see those trials answer that very question that you just asked, with the idea that even before you're having symptoms, if we determine you have amyloid, we're already trying to take it out of your brain. So how is that possible? If you don't have it, how do you take it out? Uh, well, you would have just, just the beginning of accumulation. Uh, is the idea of what these new treatments, the lecanemab, denaninab. But what you're asking is even more forward thinking. And the idea is that we would one day potentially vaccinate against amyloid or vaccinate you in a way that blocks the effect of APOE4. These are things that have been, uh, you know, how do I say, posited, but never pursued, at least not yet. What does that exactly mean, Marwan? Because I know that there's nine currently under it. Um, uh, trials, there's about nine vaccines for Alzheimer's. Right. What does that mean exactly? Like, how do you vaccinate for Alzheimer's? Yeah, so the vaccine is uh, for amyloid. And so what it is, is that you're make, you're stimulating your immune system to uh, uh, create antibodies against amyloid. Instead of giving it as an IV, you're making your own immune system do that. 
And that's what I think these drugs could do. Uh, we tried that 20 years ago, uh, Deborah, 20, 22 years ago, and it did not end well it had, with a lot of complications. So, you know, that's why this field has kind of been slow to come back to vaccinations because the problem with the vaccination is there's no on-off switch, right? You Once you turn the immune system on, you have no ability to turn it off. So that's slow. So when they're coming back in with vaccinations, these idea that your own, own immune system would find amyloid and remove it is really where the field would like to go. Uh, we tried it before without success. But don't we, isn't it like, some amyloid is okay, but it's just when things go wrong, that's when it becomes not okay anymore. Yes. So a lot, some amyloid we expect as you age, uh, but the the questions are: Is it the type of amyloid which is typically as you age you accumulate forty amino acid amyloid? But it's the Alzheimer's is the forty two amino acid. So the type of amyloid is number one. Number two is um, is that it's, it reaches a point where the species of amyloid, the oligomeric species starts to damage this brain environment. And that's when you get the spread of tangles and tau. So it's not just the presence of amyloid, but a certain progression of, of the evolution of the amyloid that starts to damage the environment, the milieu, uh, that causes the spread of the disease. So, okay, to, it, it, a lot of people are focused on plaque, as we know, and they have been in the past. Um, a lot of the remove the, the beta amyloid target studies have failed historically in Alzheimer's disease. Now we're seeing immunotherapies for Alzheimer's. Those are the MAB drugs, uh, monoclonal antibodies, where we employ our own immune system to fight the plaque. Um, we've talked a little bit about earlier, right? Like, like going, going in earlier before you have all of these problems, um, can genetics actually work in, in, in terms of digging into the research for, for other targets? Like we haven't talked about tau or inflammation. Is the, is there a relationship there that we should be thinking about in terms of genetics? So, uh, people have looked into that possibility, but I'm not sure. I think there are things that people are looking at in the inflammatory path cascade, but tau is usually perceived as a marker of injury. So you're, once your brain is injured, then you start to accumulate levels of tau. So the concept is, is that if you, you can target tau, but I don't know about the genetics specifically of tau, since that seems to be a marker of injury. Right. Um, we also have a question. Okay. So, um, Right now, I think most people targeted in research are double uh, homozygous E4, right? Um, it depends what study you're talking about. Okay. Uh, what about one copy? Is there, it, it, can can those be, I mean, they have a much less risk, but the risk is still evident. It, is, are they valuable? Um, very, very much so. I mean, you understand that the majority of people with Alzheimer's disease probably are one copy of the ApoE4. So if you take uh, the fact is, is that 60% of people with Alzheimer's disease carry at least one copy of the E4 and maybe 20% with two copies of the E4. So you're still talking about most people with a single copy of E4 get Alzheimer's, or I should say most people with Alzheimer's have an, at least one copy of the E4. So uh, uh, we know that it's much safer to give the monoclonal antibodies. I think that, I don't think anybody would argue with that. If you have one copy, I think you can go ahead and give the monoclonals. But you know, people are starting to target the genetic subtypes for different treatments. And so I think we could see more and more like that. So what does it look like to actually take medication that 
you know, makes our uh, variant of our genes act differently? Like, how does that happen? I mean, gene therapy is you're, you're basically modifying the gene and then, and then putting it back into our systems. And how does that interact with our genetics? I mean, I know the environment can change our, our genetics with epigenetics, but what does that look like in, in the form of, of medication? Right. So this is a still a relatively new area. The earliest attempts that were done with gene therapy were things like cystic fibrosis, and they have made some progress there. And uh, and then brain cancer, like glioblastoma, they've done that with, uh, with uh, gene therapy. So we know that when you have extreme diseases, you go for extreme uh, treatments. And so that is being posited or proposed to, to be done in Alzheimer's. I'm not sure that we have a clear way forward for that. I think it's still early days there, and I think we need a lot more uh, development there. Okay. And we have um, Chris Boyce is asking a question. He said he just got his amyloid 4220 test. I don't know exactly what that is. How accurate is it? So maybe talk a little bit about the different types of tests and the accuracy. So um, uh, I will tell you that uh, the blood tests are becoming used and the questions that are being asked are the ones that are being asked, like, what does this mean? You know, I have a so we expect alt, uh, amyloid to go down. Uh, you should be 42 to 40, maybe not 42 to 20, but it's 42 to 40. If that level starts to dip, uh, that means you're starting to accumulate amyloid theoretically in your brain. But it depends on what the test you got done. Is it Quest, LabCorp, Precivity? I mean, now there's Roche. There's at least four tests, uh, Lumipulse, there's actually four or five tests that are starting to make their way into the market. So I can't specifically comment on his question because I'm not sure which one he got done. Uh, and I don't know what the reference ranges and I don't know his values, et cetera. But what I will say is that we expect the amyloid to go down, tau to go up, particularly phosphorylated tau. And we might even see another one called neurofilament light go up. So uh, we're starting to try to interpret it. Deborah, it's a great question. I'm actually doing the blood tests in my clinic nowadays. And People, we have to interpret it because it's so new. I will not order on people right off the shelf. I will; they need to come and see me in the clinic before I'll order it. Marwan, tell me a little bit about the early onset markers. I mean, we've yeah. identified APP, presenilin one and two, right? And those are pretty conclusive um, genetic links to yes. Alzheimer's early onset, for that matter, yes. right? And earlier. Uh, tell me a little bit about, I mean, I, I assume these are rarer genes, I, there's rare. people who have, uh, is that why they're not really, I mean, what's happening with, with those people and research? Yeah. So uh, those are very, very rare. Of course, they're famous because the Columbia, South America was the presenilin uh, uh, cohort, presenilin one. Uh, but I will say to you that those are exquisitely rare in the general population. Those are people who are autosomal dominant, means that you know they came in and everybody in their family, every generation has had Alzheimer's, you know, and they tend to get their Alzheimer's symptoms in their 40s, early 40s, actually. I've only had one in my practice ever. So, uh, and presenone two is similar, but early 50s. So they're not common and we don't routinely test them unless they're coming in very young. The APP mutation is also relevant because, of course, that's what we see with Down syndrome, people getting Alzheimer's at a very young age in their 40s as well. 
Someone's also asked, um, my three adult children have a 50% chance of inheriting their father's familial early onset dementia. He died at 51, as did his older sister and mother, with no signs of Alzheimer's in his autopsy. Should they get genetically tested? To what end? Value of three family members all um, getting genetic testing? Um, that's that's the question. So the que that's, uh, that's a very emotional question. I'm Sorry for that uh, situation. Uh, first thing I would tell you, that is the kind of person I would send to genetic counseling. I would not just routinely order it. Presenone testing is available through Athena Diagnostics and a couple of other companies, but uh, it's something you cannot unlearn. Before you decide to do that, you better sit down with a genetic counselor and think about what that means for your adult children. So yes, you can get tested. I would do genetic counseling first. Yeah, uh, that's that's... That is a big, serious question when you have one of those markers. Okay, Jamie is asking, um, what are your thoughts about the blood biomarkers, the blood tests um, in the direct-to-consumer market? Should people, I mean, we know they're coming. Should people order a blood test and see what their risk profile is? Yeah, so that's now off the shelf, right? Quest Diagnostics has an off the shelf. And the answer is um, myself and other experts are a little bit lukewarm about the idea of off-the-shelf testing. Uh, I, I have the blood test in my clinic and I order it, uh, but I will tell you that I do not advise people not do this without having a full consultation. So when I'm drawing these tests, Deborah, I'm doing it in the context of actually establishing a relationship with the patient. So, uh, I would be caution. I would caution people about not routinely getting tested because then you have follow-up and then you have interpretation issues and then you have, you know, it's really difficult. Most doctors have no idea what it means. Only a handful of the experts uh, know what it means. So I'm not a big fan of it. Okay. And Phil's asking um, if ALS um, 801, and that's one of the gene therapies out there is approved by the FDA, would it be prescribed for asymptomatic yeah. uh, E4 homozygous patients? So there's a study with a drug called ALZ801, which is a company I think called Alzion. And there, which I should say, Alzion is the sponsor of this talk, but we have very clear, uh, they don't tell us what to say or what to ask. Um, so very clear separation of church and state. Go ahead. Perfect. So Alzion has a drug that uh, called ALZ801 that is actually finishing their uh, study called the Apollo study. The ALZ801 study is in paper with APOE4 homozygotes specifically okay so this is not everybody it's only the people with the homozygote meaning two copies of the apoe4 because their phase two trials showed very very clearly that uh they had a very robust signal in apoe4 two copies of the apoe4 the reason this is also important from your perspective deborah is that it's an oral medication it's not an iv it can be taken at home you don't need to go anywhere and so people are excited about it because it could be a very good solution the question is, what do I think that drug will work for homozygotes? I'm pretty sure it has a good shot on gold. That said, the question, will it be available or useful for everybody with Alzheimer's? I'm not sure the data is that there yet. What I will say is it probably is going to be a good choice for people with homozygotes, mainly because the risk of the monoclones is also not very favorable. So we need a new option for them anyways. So is this like if we do a talk in two or three years, I mean, we're going to talk before that, but let, let's say we do another one of these talks in, in genetics. Do you think like maybe maybe two or three is too too soon, but maybe five 
five, 10 years down the road, that there's going to be a pill if you are a high risk that you're just going to take in order to. So uh, I, what we do now and what we do five years from now, as you kind of astutely kind of questioning is, it's going to obviously change. I will tell you that these drugs are developed for people with symptomatic disease. What you're asking me is, could they be used before the uh, uh, emergence of symptoms? And we just don't know the answer to that yet. But I mean, it's obviously an area that research is pursuing. Absolutely, absolutely. And particularly right now with the monoclonals, I'm not sure the this ALZ801 is in a prevention trial yet. I'm not pretty sure it's not, but one could envision a prevention trial, yes. Can, can So do you predict that we'll be having a different conversation in five years? I do. I think because we're going to be doing more and more people doing their genetic testing and then trying to get prevention strategies in place before the emergence of symptoms. And then a last thing, because I know you have to go, but lifestyle, how much of lifestyle can reduce impact for those genetically um, predisposed? So uh, I actually, one of my books is with Jamie Tyrone, and we wrote a book called Fighting for My Life, and she has an APOE4 homozygote, meaning two copies. She's still mm -hmm. asymptomatic, uh, and it's become a very strong voice in our space. There is a huge interest in seeing if we can mitigate genetic risk through lifestyle interventions. There's a, actually a big area of research. Because a lot of people think that, you know, we should be trying to prevent our Alzheimer's symptoms, not treat it once you have it, but try to prevent it to begin with. So there's now studies on diet and exercise specifically tailored to these genetic subgroups. And I think that the answer is that they could, you could move the needle. We don't know how much, but I think you can move the needle with lifestyle directed interventions. Yeah, it's interesting area to watch, especially with like, like heart, brain, right? Like there's, there's a whole relationship there. So it's not that surprising that you can yes. mitigate. That's my newest book, a Strong Heart, Sharp Mind. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on once it's Thank published. You. Thank, you. Thank you so much, Marwan, for your expertise and your insights. As always, it's great to talk to somebody like a, a neurologist of your caliber. So thank you so thank much, you much for sharing your insights. You. If any of you missed any of this talk, please go to beingpatient.com. Sign up for our newsletter. That's when we tell you when we are doing talks like this. And again, thanks to our sponsor, Alzion, um, for highlighting this topic, a really important topic of genetics and research. Um, we will just hope for the best and what's to come. Thanks everyone for watching. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T.com. And send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.